morning, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the final week of a series called The Opportunity of Pain. Uh, but before we jump into our content, I want to invite you to be a part of something unprecedented in human history. Are you ready? <laughs> well, that was lame. Okay, anyway, it goes like this. Um, each fall, we do a, something around here called Group Link, where it's an event where you come out on like a Thursday night, you get partnered with some people, and then for five or six weeks, you journey together in a test drive of a big idea small group. On your program, there are discussion questions to help you sort of revisit the content from Sunday to process it in your own life. Uh, this year, you may have noticed, we had a little bit going on. And uh, so instead of doing an official event, we have coined something I'm so excited about. Check it out. Here it is on the screen. It is <clears throat> the free-range, gluten-free, organic Big Idea Groups. Do you love it? Yes. There are, there are not glutens anywhere near these groups. Anyway, it goes like this. Uh, starting next week, we're going to do a six-week series exploring the Lord's Prayer, that famous prayer Jesus gives his disciples. Each week we're going to go after one of the images that Jesus uses in that prayer. And I would love it if you would gather with some people you already know and already do life with, so no excuses, right? And all you got to do is bring your big idea discussion guide home with you, and then at some point during the week, sit down and have a conversation. Now, some of you are like, could we have it at breakfast? Yes, you could. Could you have it at lunch? Yes. Could you go out for beers and dinner? Yes. Wherever you want to do, grab some people you already do life with, you already have a relationship with, and have a spiritual conversation. Here's what you're going to find. A lot of people are ready to have these conversations, but no one wants to ask the awkward questions, and I ask them for you. Okay? You're welcome. So give that a try. I'll bump you again next week. Um, and then if you actually do it, I'm going to have you email us just so we know you're doing it. Uh, and then we want to send you a survey at the end to say, how did this work? And if this goes well, friends, I'm writing a book about small groups. I'm just kidding. It's not really that great an idea. But anyway, okay, Opportunity of Pain. Again, we're in the final week of this series. And in the series, The Opportunity of Pain, we're exploring a really great question. It goes like this. Um, it goes, what does faith look like when life falls apart? What does faith look like when life falls apart? It's a really great question because eventually, for all of us, life falls apart. We experience a collapse in our marriage and we feel lost relationally. Our finances collapse and we're not sure how we're going to provide for our family. Our health collapses and we're not sure how much longer we get on planet Earth. Or our teenagers head off the rails and life feels out of control. And in these moments... It's so natural, even normal, for faith in God to struggle. It's natural to ask, how could this have happened if God really cares about me? And I'm confident that more than a few of us are here this morning, and this is a live question in our hearts and our minds right now. For others of us, we see these seasons in the rearview mirror. For still others, there's a season of challenge that's right around the corner. I bet that's why I believe this series really is a great series for all of us, wherever you are on your faith journey. Now we're exploring this question through the lens of Psalm 139. Uh, Psalms are a book in the Old Testament of your Bible. If you open right to the middle, you'll find yourself in Psalms. And the Psalms are songs or poems written thousands of years ago, and they sort of chronicle ancient people's exploration of a relationship with God. And, and Psalm 139 was written by a man named David 3,000 years ago. You've probably heard of him. Uh, a couple things about David. He was a shepherd. He was a giant slayer. Yes, that David, David and Goliath David. He was a poet. He was a warrior, a legendary king of Israel. But he was also a deeply flawed man. And you know this when you read his story. Uh, nonetheless, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. 
And so what this means to me is that when David talks about his relationship with God, we really should lean in and listen because David helps us understand something about God's nature, something about God's character. And so David had this habit of writing songs or poems, and they were passed on throughout the generation. So what I want to do is I want to come at Psalm 139, a psalm written by King David 3,000 years ago, through a slightly different lens than we've looked at it in the previous two weeks. I want to start right at the beginning and just acknowledge that David begins by having a really honest conversation with God. Ever done that? Anybody? Yeah. So David begins with these words. He says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, uh, depending on where you are in life when you were to say something like that. Lord, you've searched me and you know me. It's comforting in those seasons that where life is hard and we have the sense that God cares about us um, and he knows about our lives. Uh, when we're scared or disturbed, the idea that God is with us can bring us a lot of peace. That's a good feeling. But, but there's another context that you might say, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. And I'm going to argue this is the context David writes from, it's the context of I've just screwed up my life. Uh, yeah, it, you've just done something and it's bad. And in that sort of context, you know, my translation of this verse, not particularly scholarly, but it might go something like this. Um, Lord, you see what nobody else sees and what's really going on inside of me. And you know that I'm a total screw up and loser. Ever felt like that? Yeah, right. That's same verse, different context. And in these moments, we're confronted with the terrifying reality that we can't really hide from God. And in a, in a moment like this, uh, David is not thinking about the days where he acted heroically and was celebrated as a hero. I would imagine that as David writes these words from the trenches of a battle that he's losing, I mean, he's thinking about how he slept with someone else's wife and God watched him do it. I think that's what David is thinking when he writes you know me. Or maybe he's thinking, God, I did the best I could in battle today, but as you know, we lost the battle, and, and maybe I should have gone left, and I went right, and maybe I should have gone right, and I went left, but, but man, I, I really screwed up today, and it cost some men their lives, men under my authority, and uh, that are my responsibility, and now I get to go talk to their parents. This is what David is feeling and I think this is the sort of thought that goes on for us in the worst moments of our lives. And when we say, God, you've searched me, God, you know me, that our worst moments are fully visible to God. David continues in the next verse. He says, you know, you know, God, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. It's like, God, you know everything, even the crazy stuff that's going on inside of my head. I, I can't hide anything from you. I'm an open book to you. He continues, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. In other words, God, you follow me around and you know which beds I end up in. Awkward, right? You know how I am. And then he says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Whether I say it or not, you know what I want to tell her. You know what's going on inside, whether I verbalize it or not. He continues, you hem me in. In other words, you're all around me, God. Behind me and before, you lay your hand upon me. It's like David says, you follow me around, and this is key, and you pull me back when I stray. And I do, over and over again. 
He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. And the word wonderful in this context doesn't mean, God, I love it when you're in my face and you yank me back when I'm disobedient. It means it's incomprehensible. You're with me. You're watching what I do. You know me. You know what I want to do even when I don't do it. You know what I want to say even when I don't say it. You're constantly and consistently with me. Which again can bring a lot of comfort, but it can also be very, very disturbing. Can I ask you an honest question? Do you ever wish you could ask God to look away? Don't nudge the person next to you, it's awkward, right? But do you ever wish you could ask God to look away? I mean, you want to say, God, um, will you not watch for a while? Because I, I want to do some stuff and I'm not sure you're good. Well, actually, I'm convinced you wouldn't really like it. So could you just kind of look at, at someone else? I don't really want you to see it. I mean, just to unpack it a bit, you know, I, I picked a great Bible word as an example, the word lust, which is just an awesome thing. We only talk about the word lust in church, but here's a definition of lust. Um, what you're rehearsing in your mind that you would do with your body if you had the guarantee that you wouldn't get caught. And all of a sudden, it's really quiet in here, right? Yeah. Yeah, everybody knows what this is like. I mean, I would do this right now if I knew she wouldn't find out and I knew God wouldn't see it. Or, or maybe think about it this way. Do you ever wish you could hide from God? Do you ever wish you could hide from God? Not, not forever, but maybe just for a, little, for a little while, for a season. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know that hiding from God is impossible. But what I want to argue is it doesn't keep us from trying. And as I've thought about it, there's two ways that people tend to hide from God, and I, I, I framed it in terms of myself because it's also the way I try to hide from God. But the first way I think I try to hide from God is this. I try to convince myself that what God says is true, sort of categorically, isn't true for me, at least in this particular situation. It's different for me. So it's no longer an obstacle. And, and by the way, um, and someone else may be with me on this, but this almost never works out well for me when I have this, this thought. That's the first way I think I try to hide. The second way goes like this. I try to ignore God, act like he's not there, blame someone else, or compare the little thing I did to the major horrible things that some people do, right? You're like, all right, that wasn't great, but it wasn't Hitler. Let's just be honest, right? And my plan is I hope that God is a bigger fish to fry than me, and I'll just get a pass. I hope God just says, ah, you know, don't worry about it, not that big a deal. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Trying to hide from God and to rationalize our behavior has been a part of the human story since the very beginning. It's literally the oldest story in the Bible. Uh, the Bible is a story of people trying to hide from and returning to God. And as you probably know, it starts uh, in a garden called Eden with the first human beings, two people, Adam and Eve. And God places them in paradise and he says to them, listen, I'm right here. Trust me about where life is found. I'll take care of you. I'll show you what to do. Um, it, it, life will go well for you. And if you said, oh, well, that's, that sounds amazing. I mean, they, God literally walked with them in the garden. They could have conversations. They always had total clarity about what God wanted and what it looked like to trust him. How long did this arrangement last, you ask? About half a chapter. <laughs> that's it. Uh, and the humans sort of tanked the whole operation. Over time, um, Adam and Eve began to suspect that God was holding out on them. And then, in fact, though he told them that there was something that they should trust him and not do, they began to see that perhaps there was a better life 
turning from him than trusting him. And so the day comes, and we don't know how many days, months, years had gone by, but in the story, it happens almost, almost right away, uh, where they do the one thing that God told them not to do. And then what happened to them happens to us whenever we choose to turn away from something that we know is right and, and pursue a path that God has told us is not the path of life. Here's, here's what the author of Genesis tells us happened. After choosing not to trust God, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they knew they were naked, which is awkward, but if you were drifting, welcome back. We said naked in church. Um, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which apparently was a normal thing. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And, and, and do you see what they do and, and what they don't do? They have that moment when the lights go on and they're exposed. And it's that moment right after you sin and you realize you can't go back. And they realize they made a huge mistake. And they don't choose to run back towards God. Instead, they try to cover up all the embarrassing, shameful parts that they don't want him to see or anyone else to see. So they hide from God. And again, prior to turning from God, the author of Genesis describes Adam and Eve as naked and unashamed, wide open. They knew God knew everything about them, and they were not embarrassed by it. They had nothing to apologize for. And one decision later, they're in the deep weeds. Hiding from God, which is ridiculous if you think about it, right? I mean, you think about the game hide and seek, and I have four young boys, um, and they all have traveled through the preschool time now. They're all in school. Glory, hallelujah. But anyway, um, I remember playing hide and seek with each of them when they were preschoolers. And I don't know if you know this, but preschoolers are really bad at hide and seek. You ever tried this? Yeah, I mean, they are terrible. My kids were so bad at hide-and-seek, I remember thinking with each of them, there's no way we're really related, right? Because you're really bad at this. Uh, generally, they would end up behind a curtain, and it's would say, hey, are you behind the curtain? And this little voice would say, no. <laughs> and I'm like, but I can see your feet. You're totally right behind the curtain, and your brothers did the same thing, right? But, but it's like they're really bad at hiding, just like human beings are bad at hiding from God, and it's been that way since the beginning. So the story continues. The Lord God called to the man, even though he knew where he was, and said to him, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was naked, so I hid. And, and God said, well, who told you you were naked? Then he says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And I think there was pain in the voice. And the man said, the woman you gave, well done, Adam, there you go. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman, of course, points behind herself and says, no, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. It's interesting that God asked what they had done, and, because he already knew. And he already knew where they were hiding. And he could have used, like, the force to pull them out from hiding, and he could have kicked them out of the garden and could have started over, but, but he didn't. Instead, he asked three questions. He says, where are you? Who told you that? And have you done what I told you not to do? It's like, don't you know I love you? Don't you know I have your best interest in mind? And he, and he asks, even though he already knows, and they could have come clean, but again, they shift the, from the hiding game to the blaming game. And it just makes me think of times that I'm tempted to do the same thing. I mean, you ever tried to blame your sin on your wife or your ex-wife or your parents or your kids? You ever tried to blame your sin on God? 
I mean, Adam says to God, hey, that woman you gave me, and by the way, she was the only option at the time, right? I mean, yeah, it was Eve or nothing, and then Eve blames the deceiver. She's like, well, there was a snake that talked to me. And by the way, you know what's worse than, um, what's, what's worse than being bad at hiding? It's not being found. You ever play hide and seek and nobody found you? I mean, you're like hid really well and you're out there forever and your friends like all have kind of given up and they've gone home and like the sun comes down and the streetlights come on and the crickets come out and you're still in the tree and like you wander home and they're all in the basement having pizza, watching Netflix. You're like, what in the heck, guys? And they're like, oh yeah, well, yeah, you hid really good. I mean, nobody found you. That's not a great feeling. In Psalm 139, David writes that God knows what's going on in his life and in its head, and it's not good. He's failed, he's angry, he feels hopeless. That's where Psalm 139 begins, but friends, that's not where Psalm 139 ends. Because midway through, David takes a breath and remembers all the times that he's tried to hide from God and run from God. And every time, instead of God reaching into the bushes and pulling him back out, instead of giving him what he deserved, God says to David, I'm not done with you. Your mistake is not bigger than my grace. I mean, even after David sleeps with someone else's wife and then has that someone else killed in battle because David's the king and he can do that, God sends a prophet to David, a messenger, to bring him back. So David reflects on the nature and on the character of God, and he ends this poem with some of the same words with which it began. David began, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. And then he ends with words of invitation. He writes this, and there's this urgency behind it. It's like, please, God, Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me towards life. Don't give up on me. Don't stop searching for me. I know me. I'll wander off again. I'll be disobedient again. Get inside my head, God. Reveal where I'm disobedient. If I put up a wall, kick it down. Because if you give up on me, I'm done. If I tried to hide in the shadows, then turn the lights on. If you don't hold me together, God, I will fall apart. And, I, and you see in this, this invitation something that, that really is, is true for all of us. And it's simply this. God has invited us to trust him about where life is found and yet allows us enough to go our own way. And, and so in an honest moment, you might think to yourself, well, man, what I need is I need God to like show up in my living room and just tell me what to do, right? Because then I'm confident I would do exactly what he said. Or, or maybe, you know, I wrote it down on a slide. Have you ever wished God would just physically stand in the room and tell you what you're supposed to do, right? Like I keep making a mess of things, God, bring some blazing clarity, just kind of show up because, because then I know I would do it. You know why I know this, God? Because you know when I'm the best driver on the planet? When there's an officer, oh, the law behind me, right? That, I mean, I am watching the road, I am 10 and 2, and I am not, you know, texting ever, 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 right? I'm great. But see, there's a difference between being a good driver and driving well to avoid punishment. And that's why God doesn't just show up. 
his presence, his overwhelming presence, would necessitate your compliance. But compliance of behavior isn't really what he's after, at least not that alone. He wants your heart. He loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And so he will tell you the way to go. And then he will ask you to trust him because trust is how relationships are born and trust is how relationships can grow. And that's why God allows us to choose to try and hide from him, even though we can't, because he loves us. Well, before we close, I want to talk specifically to three groups of people, because if we're honest, I think we've all spent time in each of these three groups. And my guess is that more than a few of us are in each group right now. So let me just throw these out there and see if any of these are you. And then I'm going to kind of speak to us all categorically. First group goes like this. I know what God said was true, and I chose to do something else, and now the way that you justify it is to either, or the way that, um, and now the way that you hide is either to justify it, to compare it, or to try to ignore it. And, and maybe, maybe if you think for a moment, that, that might be you. Maybe you've lived much of your life not looking up because you know if you make eye contact with God, the conversation will not go well, or at least that's what you suspect. That's, that's the first group. Uh, second group goes like this, and you might be in this one too. It feels like you're alone in the woods and no one cares or is looking for you. You feel like you've gone too far. You feel like you've done too much. And you feel like God has given up on you. And that, that's, that's group two. And group three goes like this. We're rehearsing what we would do if we had the guarantee that we wouldn't get caught. Like you found yourself last night with your cell phone in hand thinking, man, I probably should text Bathsheba, right? That was a little Bible joke. We'll check it later. Yeah, right? Yeah, maybe we can meet up for coffee after church or something. Yeah. But maybe you spend a lot of your time considering things that you really know that you shouldn't do. And if you're honest, you would if God would just look away. Here's the thing. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're in one of those groups, none of those groups, all of those groups, there's something that's true for all of us. And it goes like this. Our only hope is that God doesn't give up on us. No matter where we find ourselves on the journey of this life, that God doesn't give up on us. He comes looking for us with overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. The love of a father who desperately loves his disobedient children. It is his faithfulness to us and not our faithfulness to him that is the idea on which the New Testament of your Bible hinges. In fact, there's an author, uh, author named Paul, a pastor. He writes to Christians living in Rome, and he says this for us. Um, he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, we were still hiding, we were still lost in the weeds, we were still doing things that we weren't supposed to do, but even in that moment, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, God sent his one and only son to live among us as one of us and to die on the cross for us. And that is a demonstration and an authentication of the reality that he loves you and he cares for you. And you never have to wonder how he feels about you because anyone who would send his one and only son to die for you is for you. And he's for you in what comes after this life and he's for you in the trenches of this life life. He loves you and he never stops pursuing you. And so if you're here this morning 
and you feel like you've done too much and you've somehow disqualified yourself from a relationship with God, that he would never want a relationship with someone like you, the message this morning is that is not true. It never has been. And you know this because of Jesus. We're going to close our time together by taking communion. Uh, and as we take communion, we're going to be listening to the song Reckless Love. And if you've never done communion with us, uh, just a couple of housekeeping details. You don't have to be a member at Keystone to do communion. We don't have membership. And so we just ask that you have said yes to Jesus, that you believe that his sacrifice on the cross was for you. Uh, and despite your disobedience, you have been brought into relationship with your heavenly father. And if that's you, you're welcome to take communion with us. Uh, we have 10 stations. The gluten-free stations are along this wall over here. So if that is what you need to do, I'm heading that direction. And just by way of, of setup, on the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, he has a final meal with his first followers. And during that meal, he takes common elements and infuses them with uncommon or brand new sorts of meaning. He takes bread and he breaks it and he said, this bread is like my body, which will soon be broken for you. And then he holds up a cup of wine and he said, this wine represents a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new testament in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of, of all sin, whosoever shall come. And so Jesus said, when you gather and when you eat the bread and when you take of the wine, remember me. Remember how this revolution got started. Remember how desperately you are loved. And that even in your darkest moment, your heavenly father pursues you, doesn't give up on you, and wants you back. You pray for us and then we'll take communion together. Heavenly father, we thank you for your overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. And for those of us that are in the weeds this morning, I pray that we would sense you calling to us, inviting us back, a fresh start, a new beginning made possible because of the blood of Jesus. And so we celebrate that sacrifice this morning. We bless you. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, Amen.